When the quest cannot wait for the party to be ready. When the crime lord of Waterdeep knows everything. When you become a timeless master of lore for your people. When you have to ask an Illithid for advice. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. This is the first entry into our chronicle and was recorded on Saturday, November 25th and released Wednesday, the 29th of November over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. I'm Lennon and gathered with me here tonight are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ostron. And I'm Ryu. So you may be asking yourself, what is the podcast and why am I here? Both are excellent questions. Heroes Rise is, at its core, a show all about D&D. Each week we'll bring you our take on the latest news from Wizards of the Coast and the wider D&D circles, along with advice for players and DMs of all skills and abilities, and we'll even answer some of your questions along the way. So, if you're a brand new player taking your first steps into the world of Dungeons & Dragons and just looking for some helpful advice, or you've dungeon mastered for so long you can still recite the Thaco tables without looking, we're sure to have something for you. This show is brought to you by a collection of the finest minds from Priority One Productions, as well as some new friends, using the secretly guarded spells and sigils that we've developed on our other podcasts, Priority One and Guard Frequency. So if you're new to us and you want to get a feel for our style, check out a few of our episodes over at PriorityOnePodcast.com and GuardFrequency.com. Some of you might even be joining us because you listen to our coverage of Star Trek and Space Stims. So a big hello and welcome to you all. Of course, D&D is a very different game, so naturally the show will probably evolve in its own direction over time. But if you know us from Priority 1 or Guard Frequency, then you know we like to deliver a quality show like Clockwork, and the standard here is absolutely no different. But, much like our other shows, it does take the constant effort of a team of people to do this, so if you think you've got what it takes to join us, then get in touch, either by emailing us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, by getting in touch on all good social media platforms at heroesrise.com, D&D, or by using the contact form on our website. So, Ryu, what do we have in store for our brave adventurers this week? First of all, we'll give you a tool for your adventurers packs for those times when you need to generate a character quicker than you can say, hey, what level should I make that paladin? Then we take a look at some D&D news as we bring you the highs and lows of Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Next, we take a short rest as Lennon discovers the true meaning of Thanksgiving, before finally finishing off the show by asking our resident Illithid about fudging the dice. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. Do you always carry this machine bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need this stupid rule for. Dungeon Masters, listen well, for I'm about to recall for you a tale of horror from the gaming table. A tale no doubt familiar to most of you out there. As we all know, there are times when the characters decide to follow a course that you hadn't exactly planned for, and to say that you're flying by the seat of your pants is a little bit of an overstatement. The tale I wish to share with you happened recently to me when my party found themselves in the city of Neverwinter, tasked with killing a lich that had been terrorizing the good city folk. Wanting to give themselves the best possible chances of survival, the party decided that they would need to hire another adventurer, a cleric to be specific one that was around their level and would be happy to go on an adventure for a share in the spoils. Now, aside from being the type of DM who generally likes to say yes to things and then weave out how the story works through improvisation, even if I had wanted to say no, there is absolutely no way you couldn't find a willing adventurer of that calibre in Neverwinter. There was no other path. A cleric will be joining the party. The trouble is, I didn't have a cleric prepared, as I never anticipated that they would go seeking one. Sure, I could have tried to throw a few obstacles in to delay the session, a couple of random encounters, and slow things down and just eke out the very edge of the session, leaving me with the time between sessions to prep the cleric, but that kind of wouldn't have fit well with the narrative and, quite frankly, just felt a little cheap. Luckily, I had the perfect tool in my adventurer's pack. Fastcharacter.com kind of does what its name implies. It generates you a character fast. 
all you need to do is go to the website, pick a race and a class, otherwise it'll default to a human fighter, and fill in any optional info such as level, name, gender, alignment, background, so on and so forth, or just leave all of that completely blank. Hit click to create character and it'll roll the stats and make a character sheet for you, complete with proficiencies, languages, spells, all that great stuff right before your eyes. In terms of races, it has pretty much anything that's been released, including the basic rules, the PHB races such as the Dragonborn, exotic races that have appeared in places like Elemental Evil, so yes, it can generate you a Sferf Neblin or an Aasmar if you wish, and it has generators for Eberron races such as Warforged. The place for me though as a DM where this tool truly shines is that it has monster races. Now it does only have Bugbear, Goblin, Hobgoblin, Kobold, Orc, and Yuanti Pureblood, but I still feel that even with that limited selection, there's just something a little bit special about having an NPC enemy captain that's fully fleshed out with spells and abilities that you wouldn't normally have in accordance with its stats in the monster manual, and at a level that's challenging enough for your players to fight. Links to this site will be in our show notes, so be sure to check out this fantastic little tool for your adventurous packs. So I think it's worth mentioning, because this generated a little bit of talk amongst our own staff, this is a fast character generator. It's not necessarily and shouldn't really be considered a random character generator. Uh, you sort of should have right. an idea of what kind of character you want when you go into it. Because as Lennon mentioned, if you just pull up the site, leave everything set and hit generate, you're going to get a human fighter every time. Its stats will be slightly different from iteration to iteration, but it's not going to, you know, first go give you a human fighter and then second go you're going to get a dragonborn paladin or anything like that no but it does give you for what i needed for at the time which was a cleric to join this party just the ability to log on type out the cleric's name which i kind of already had generated select ninth level hit go and just have it done complete with spells proficiencies background it just added so much to the session where i could just then take this character sheet and join in as kind of like a uh, almost like a DMPC to assist and help the party out. But it was more the fact that we didn't have to slow down, didn't have to kind of bring the session to a grinding halt whilst I like grabbed all my D6s and tried to roll a cleric on the spot. Now, it doesn't have every subclass that you could want. Does it not? Well, I'm looking for, I believe they're called the Blade Dancer for the wizard. Blade, Blade Singer, Singer from yes, Sword Coast right. Adventurer's Guide. So what I'm reading in the class dropdown is just the basic ones that are in the PHB. Oh, that's interesting, because it does have the monster races and the general other races from the various other yeah, sources. It yeah, it looks too. like it's lacking in the extra archetypes, because, for example, the rogue archetypes from Sword Coast Adventures guys aren't options either. I do like that it already just randomly pick out the spells for you, and that's really nice when you don't have the time, because picking out spells takes a long time. Yeah, that was one of the things that I thought, as soon as my party decided that they wanted to hire a cleric, that was the main thing that went through my mind was, uh, I just, I, I couldn't be bothered, basically, to sit there and try to figure out what spells to give this cleric. And I know that clerics get access to effectively the full roster, but just, you know, trying to figure out which ones they already had, what was going to be really annoying. But yeah, it does already pick uh, a certain number of spells based on whatever level you generate the character sheet at. So I just made a ninth level wizard while we were sitting here talking about this, and the spells are actually a very good mix between offense and defense. So for first level, it gave me mage armor, protection from evil and good, and charm person. Well, I've also just generated a wizard whilst I'm here. He's also ninth level, and he has uh, detect magic, identify, and fog cloud at first level. And quite frankly, I think my wizard can kick your wizard's ass. Yeah, probably can. <laughs> Though mine has cloud kill for fifth level spell. Ooh. ooh. And yeah, banishment got, and confusion. I've got cone of cold. Oh, I've got can, that one I can too. make you a little bit chilly. <laughs> so the fifth level spells I was given were planar binding, cloud kill, and cone of cold. Oh, that's interesting because I was only generated two spells, which was scrying and cone of cold at that level. So clearly it's actually going through and preparing different levels of spells as well, which is which is pretty good. Um, Ostron, I think in, in the interests of uh, science, you should generate a character now, a ninth level wizard. <laughs> okay. One thing I did note is that the ability arrays that I've noticed so far seem to be 
fairly mundane. I am not seeing a lot of arrays that deviate very much from plus two to minus one. Like usually it seems like there'll be one plus three, a couple of plus twos, a plus one, and then like a, either two zeros or a zero or a negative one. I haven't seen any arrays that go wild with like two plus fours and a minus two and a minus one or anything like that. All right, I seem to be mostly a control wizard. I've got counterspell, dispel, magic, invisibility, misty step, mage armor. Yeah, the only real kill you spells I have are fireball and banishment. And even banishment isn't a kill you. It's just please go away until we can uh, deal with you later. So yeah, it's, it's please go away until I can kill you. Right. Or more likely, please go away until my buddies can kill you. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, th I think, okay, so you, your wizard definitely beats my wizard, but it's whether between you and Ryu, who would win in a wizard off? Yeah, well, it's, it seems like it would basically be, am I able to avoid her longer than she's able to target me? And knowing the way that she rolls dice, the answer is probably no. Is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Though leaks, hints, and previews had been making their way around the internet and other places for weeks prior, on November 21st, last Tuesday for those of you following the Gregorian calendar, the latest 5th edition D&D book, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, was released. Despite the title, the book doesn't cover everything, proving that the crime lord of Waterdeep is nothing but a liar. But I enjoy having all of my particles right where they are, so please don't tell him that we said that. There are, for example, no new monsters, nor are there any pre-made adventure modules or dungeons that can be used. The book is, broadly speaking, split into two sections, stuff for players and stuff for DMs. For players, there are 25 subclasses or archetypes for existing classes and 103 newish spells for the various spellcasting classes to use. We say new-ish because there are some totally new entries to the list, but a number of items have been reprinted from other sources, such as Elemental Evil or the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. And then, of course, there's the Unearthed Arcana test material that is now official. For those confused or just unfamiliar with the process, technically, if a class or spell appears in a book centered on a particular region or campaign setting, such as the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, it's supposed to be used within the context of that campaign. Reprinting them in Xanathars means that they're now okay to use anywhere. Of course, many players don't follow that rule, and it's not really hard and fast, but many of the items reprinted for Xanathars have been tweaked for balance or clarity, so using the version from the most recent book is probably a better bet. In addition to the subclasses and spells, there is an entire section with recommendations and rolling tables for players to use in constructing their characters' backgrounds, motivations, and attitudes that expands on the sections already in the player's handbook, allowing players who may otherwise struggle to do so create a more in-depth backstory for their characters. Now, for those of you sitting behind the screen, Xanathars has a whole host of resources. First, it introduces some optional rules that add some depth to game mechanics, like falling, sleeping with armor on, and spellcasting. There are also expanded options and suggestions for building encounters with solo monsters, distributing common magic items, and running shared campaigns, or campaigns with DMs who switch off for whatever reason. The other thing Xanathars has for Dungeon Masters is tables. Seriously, this book has more tables than IKEA. There are encounter generation tables, name creation tables, reward tables... The list goes on. Uh, Ostron, no doubt, will be waxing poetic about how great the tables are in just a little bit. But yeah, if you're a DM who likes to use tables, then this book is definitely for you. So, we've all picked up a copy of Xanathar's Guide to Everything. In fact, I don't know a single D&D player or DM who hasn't so far picked up a copy of Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Uh, we've sort of given it a brief overview just then, but I wanted to sort of like chat about our favorite parts a bit. So uh, Rio, why don't you kick us off with what your favorite parts of Xanathar's are? Well, being someone who usually makes a casting class, I am really happy that they have new area of effect diagrams and not just one little sentence saying, this is where the area of effect goes. 
There are diagrams now that give you actual coverage options. Right? You can see the coverage options better with the new diagrams. And it's really nice, especially for cone spells. Yeah, is this the one where they've kind of like built it out using dice in the book? Like they show you how you can uh, sort of make a template if you don't have a template. They show you how you can use a template and they show you how you can use tokens to mark the area of effect of the spell. And the templates, I think, are better for rounded spell shapes like circles and spheres and cylinders. Yeah. Because if you use the tokens, it just negates that rounded shape and makes everything a square. But both of them are really useful and really nice. And like I said, especially with cones, because the cone rules have changed from the first edition that I played in, which was 3.5, to 5th edition. And... It's really nice to be able to see exactly where your cone is going and exactly who you can target. And because it is focused on one point of the square that where you're standing, you can choose whichever direction it goes. Yeah. You can also have it start in your square if you want to, which would hurt your own character, but <laughs> but it also gives you a wider range right in front of you. Yeah, I mean, there are those times where you kind of have to almost sacrifice yourself in order to make sure that the enemy feels the pain. So for those of you playing along at home, this is on page 86 and 87 in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And yeah, the cone rules are something that I thought were... Um, quite helpful i know that previously they had gone into this in i think it was the player's handbook where they kind of show you they've got a i think it was in the casting a spell section where they've got like a picture of a chalkboard and kind of like the point of origin of the spell and they say like what the range is and all that and if you have come from previous editions you can generally get the rough idea about sort of like the shape of a, a cone and the area that it can cover but here where they actually talk about areas of effect on a grid and how far that extends if you're using the sort of I don't know what the proper term for it is. I'm sure there's a proper one out there, but I just call it the fourth edition diagonals, where a diagonal movement is still five foot. And it shows you how you can break that out using just... In this case, it shows you using dice, but that's to make the squares really obvious. I really like the way that they've done that. So you've now got a very clear angle of, no, this is exactly where that spell will fall. And it can either be sort of like a wide-angled cone or a narrow-angled cone, depending on the facing that you're taking. Now, I do think that... Most people are going to use the token method of deciding where the area of effect is, which is really going to negate any of the circle spells as far as where the area of effect goes, because it just makes them all a square. Although you can, I mean, if you want to adhere to how circles or rounded objects are typically drawn in, for example, pixel environments, like the... The diagram they use 2.3. Yes. They're using a circle with a 10-foot radius, I believe, which they turn into a 4x4 four four square. I think a more accurate translation to the token method would be to make it two 4x2 two lines that intersect. Basically, the corner token shouldn't be there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then that, you know, gets... Uh, I was more. seeing that right as you were talking about it. Right. Because even if you look above when they have an actual circle over the grid, the corner squares are barely hit. So, I, True. yeah, I would say the token, the token example they give isn't possibly the best guide to use. But it does say in the token method, it actually says if it hits any point in any square, then that square is under the effect. So that kind of makes every circle a square anyway, then. Right. Yeah. I don't like this rule. I'm seeing that your average player and DM are probably going to go with the token rules because it can hit more things. Probably. What confused me were the line diagrams. Like the, the, the ones on the diagonal, you mean? Well, no, even the straight, because I don't, like are th I'm not, I haven't played spellcasters in fifth edition very much, but are there spells that have lines that are too wide or that are ten feet wide? I think there's a uh, one of the lightning spells is a ten foot line. Okay, but that's the only one that springs to mind, and I might just be making that up because it's very late where I am, and I've not had a lot of sleep today. So I know that some of the walls are wider than one than five feet. Yeah. So that may be it. Yeah. Although it is, like you said, it's kind of weird how they have positioned it on the grid because they seem to have chosen the the literal square and the, the squares in front of where the character is 
and then the one sort of like immediately to the right. Whereas I would have thought that if it was 10 foot, and I guess this is where they're actually trying to keep it on the grid, but they should have kind of centered that line so it was kind of overlapping, so you had half a square either side. The rules do say that it starts at on a corner of the square, though. Right. Yeah, that yeah. didn't confuse me so much. I just, I wasn't sure why they gave, hey, here's a line that only goes once or across a five foot square and then here are lines that go across 10 foot squares because I couldn't think of spells that did 10 feet but that was just me not remembering <laughs> well this wizard seems to be casting some sort of 12d6 spell because there's definitely 12d6s coming out the front of him <laughs> and he looks like a wizard he might be a gnome actually that might just be a fancy garden hat. <laughs> I'm sure that many of our listeners are not in the same boat as me but I just started really getting into Unearthed Arcana this past April so pretty much every single one of the subclasses in Xanathar's are new to me I was very happy to see a lot more healing and or damage mitigation classes. I don't know about your games, but in my games, healing clerics get very little love. Nobody wants to play the healing cleric, so it's nice to have options for that. Yeah, um, one of my games, I've got a player who, prior to the release of Xanathar's Guide, like, so we're talking like just about three weeks ago, they were rolling characters for a brand new campaign, and I kept trying to get them to just, like, put it off a couple of weeks, but you know what players are like, they just want to go, like, now. And yeah, he, he wanted to play a healing cleric that is basically um, the almost like an exact copy of the Grave Domain from this book. The Grave Domain here being a slightly uh, different take on the cleric and gives you a lot of uh, additional spells like vampiric touch and death ward and uh, just the general sort of necrotic flavors to the whole thing and uh, yeah that's the uh, the sort of the path that they, he eventually chose but yeah clerics do tend to be undervalued in parties I feel or not undervalued because they're certainly valued underplayed I think a lot of times people just think that healing is boring it's also, I've noticed, it's it's a class where you very often have the rest of your party telling you what to do on your turn. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that it's boring. It's just that if, unless the party has a good understanding of tactics, it's like you're going to get to your turn as the healer and you're already going to have a laundry list from the rest of your party about what you are supposed to do with all of your actions and spell slots. And right. if you deviate from that requests line, then they're going to look askance at you. And if anyone ends up dead, you're going to be held immediately responsible. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these classes uh, give you damage mitigation instead of actual healing, like the yes. Path of the Ancestral Guardian. For the barbarian, yeah, that's mm. got a lot of like you're not allowed to hit this person. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of protection for the other players. It's not really healing, but it still helps keep everybody else alive. Yeah, and there is something to be said about healing through damage mitigation, or rather, lack of death through damage <laughs> mitigation. Obviously, it's not healing. So a couple of things that I liked from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Um, firstly, the minor magic items. These are the items that have absolutely no real effect on gameplay. Page 136 of Xanathar's Guide to Everything, common magic items. So as an example, bead of nourishment. This spongy, flavorless, gelatinous bead dissolves on your tongue and provides as much nourishment as one day of rations. It's pointless. It's just pure, I was going to say it's pure flavour. I, I meant in, in like game descriptive terms. Obviously, the gelatinous blob is probably quite flavourless. It literally says in the description. But things like this just help for me to make the, the world just a little bit more magical. And I, I think regardless of whether you're playing in a homebrew setting or, or the Forgotten Realms, 5th edition is by default quite a low magic setting. Yes. And I quite like the idea of, um, you know, if the way that I look at it is I'm personally quite a lazy person and if i had access to magic i would be using it to make my everyday life as easy as possible and by having like loads of these common magical items in it it just kind of adds to that flavor of people who have the magic would be using it like this on a day-to-day -day basis cloak of billowing whilst wearing this cloak you can use a bonus action to make it billow dramatically absolutely i'd be I'd be down for something that like that. It would be every bonus action? Uh, yeah, literally. I was, 
you know, I'd do my action, I'd do my move, and then I would just have my cloak billow. Yes, I could try to, you know, cast a spell or heal someone, but no, I'm just going to look cool. Just to be fair, you said that these have no effect on the game. I think you should more say that they have no direct effect on game mechanics, because a lot of this stuff can be very useful in more roleplay situations rather than like mechanical skill checks or combat. For example, the billowing cloak thing could have some effect one way or the other on a persuasion check or a performance in certain situations. Right. I mean it doesn't it doesn't directly say that in this in the item's description, you know. Right. It doesn't it doesn't say it gives you a, a plus one to charisma checks or anything like that. But yeah, I totally agree. Sorry, for for roleplay purposes, this stuff is great in mechanical purposes. And I think being a DM, uh, as we all are, uh, I tend to think in terms of mechanics far often than I do in terms of roleplay, which that's just yeah, totally my uh my little hang up there. I feel like a lot of the minor magic items that they have in this book are not only meant for roleplay, but also meant for level one characters to actually have something magical yeah. without having to go out and search for it. Even if it doesn't help with mechanics, it's still something fun for your character to have. Yeah, absolutely. And also, it depends on what mechanics you're actually implementing. Because, for example, in the game I'm DMing, I am using a a simplified version of encumbrance rules, and I'm also enforcing rations. So that bread that you know is just a little moat, but it gives you a full day's rations, would actually matter quite a bit in my game because it's taking up a lot less space and is providing a full day of rations. So even though they're not helping you with combat, it it still helps with a lot of game settings that people might be thinking of coming up with. The other thing that I really liked in Xanathar's Guide to Everything is the section on tool proficiencies. And not so much that, you know, they explain in more depth what tool proficiencies are, but they give you, and this is good for players as well, a lot of examples of other ways you can use your tools to accomplish some tasks. So, for example, um, the thieves' tools you could use to set a trap, not just disarm a trap. And so many times uh, players in my games have tried to do things similar to this, but not known if they could do it, and there was a question of, you know, can I add my proficiency to it? This gives us a lot of examples, a lot of clear guidance on when you can, when you can't, and just having my players read over this, they were just then full of ideas of everything that they wanted to try in the next session. The proficiencies can be found on page 78, and it expands for a fair few pages up until page 85. So to give you an example, using the potter's tools, uh, you could determine what a vessel once held, or obviously you can create a pot, but you can also find a weak point in a ceramic object. So like if there's a statue somewhere... And you need to get into the statue, like, or maybe there's something hidden in the statue. Or if you're facing a terracotta army, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, either or. Or if you happen to come across an eighth level gazebo made of nothing but bone china. I think that would be a pretty, pretty rare gazebo. If you've come up against an eighth level gazebo made of some well, entirely of bone china, please get your DM drug tested, like stat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we put it off long enough. Ostron, tell us about the tables. Oh, the tables are wonderful. I am notoriously bad at fleshing out NPCs that I use in my campaigns, but I will throw a lot of them around to liven up the scenery and make it more believable, particularly in towns or encampments. I'll say, you know, you've got this group of dwarves over here and there's a couple of elves over here and there's some goblins running around somewhere and of course as they should the players often go over and try to talk to these people and I can usually come up with something to have them say but I completely fall apart on the names so the name tables for one are just amazing because they're broken down not only by a fair variety of names, but they've got them by race, they've got them by gender, it's just oh, I have already used them at least three times, and I am never going back. 
this is everything that's in Appendix B, isn't it? Right. And there are... The, in fact, I'm just going to keep flicking through whilst I'm on the mic, and our audio editor, Mikey, is going to kill me for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh-huh. Um, there are... Uh, what is this? 20 pages of name tables? Something like, like that, yeah. <laughs> that is ridiculous. In addition, we mentioned the for the players, the section on fleshing out your backstory there are a lot of rolling tables involved there which a lot of players are fairly creative anyway and they like to come up with their own ideas but even just reading through the tables and seeing what some of the options are for backstories or things like that can even if you don't roll literally on the tables they can spark some creative ideas for them to flow somewhere else I find it very interesting that they've got the human names tables actually use real life names. Oh, like Barry and John and Kevin. Yep. Like a uh, Chinese name of Ai and Li and Liu, Qi, Chao. They have, those are actual Chinese names. I, mean, I just went with Barry, but whatever. Barry's not on yeah, there, well. but, <laughs> but Arnold is. <laughs> Barry's not on that. <laughs> Bernard is on there. Yeah, so do you guys not tend to use actual real names in your campaigns? Are you... I don't. Because like, I have... Yeah, I was going to say, I have a habit of doing this. I, I just come up with random fantasy-sounding names, and then I have to scribble them down, try and remember how I spell them, and keeping consistency is an absolute pain in the backside, but they never sound like actual names. I have a habit of going to a Tolkien Elvish dictionary and looking upwards there... And making right. my names out of those. I I will usually go to Google Translate, pick an obscure language, and then pick a word that is in my head is associated oh, with the character. Yes, yes. Translate it, and then whatever comes up, I'll bastardize it until it sounds like a name, and then use that. Uh -huh. My favorite thing, um, and this is... For any of my players that are listening, this is really going to sort of, you know, let you see the man behind the curtain here. Um, if you need names for Archfey or Fey in general, use uh, Finnish translations of a word that's based on their personality. So, yeah, type in, you know, something like uh, darkness and translate that. And then you get like whatever it is. And then, yeah, just turn it into an English sounding name. I love that idea. Um, yeah. It's that that's that's a good one. We should uh we should do a show where we give people tips, you know. That would Really, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> so the other thing that's a lot more specific that I liked out of Xanathar's was the Oath of Conquest Paladin option. Just because in most of the classes and subclasses that I've seen, the D&D people are they very much go toward well it is possible to make this character evil, but these are all of the different ways that you can make it good. Right. And the Oath of Conquest Paladin is the closest I've seen in a while to a D&D &D official class just going, yeah, you're probably evil. I, just <laughs> I am not going to lie. The first time I read through Oath of Conquest Paladin, I got shivers down my spine just reading the first couple of paragraphs. Yeah, just because, I mean, I read this and I was like, okay, so if someone says they want to literally play Darth Vader, you just hand them this. Oh, yes. This subclass. This paladin has the tenets of their oath seared onto their arms, guys. They're intense. Yeah, which actually, that wouldn't really work with Darth Vader because he has no arms. <laughs> well, but then it's just engraving, so... Right. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Yeah, so basically, conquest, uh, the Conquest Paladin plus a prismatic blade or a sun blade that's kind of, you know, flavoured red. Darth Vader. Right. But yeah, I was just... it for, And I know there have been examples of more evil archetypes for classes but I hadn't seen one in 5th edition yet and like I said most of the ones that have come up have been like well these are the you know this archetype these are all of the good ways that wholesome adventurers of this class behave and yeah then also there are some people who take it down a darker path but this one it's just like no these people like if, even the debatably good ones are bad news Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
that was sort of like a brief rundown of our favorite parts of Xanathar's Guide to Everything. But um, this book kind of also, as, as great as I think this resource is, and, you know, we clearly enjoy it here, it has, even amongst our own crew, generated quite a bit of controversy because there's some people that have said that the um, format of this book, and you kind of alluded to a bit earlier, Ostrom, where you said that the fifth edition sort of style doesn't help with the organization of information. There was a couple of complaints that I've heard not just from our crew but some other places around the net as well that this guidebook it's uh it's not like the ones in the past where what we mean by that is that it's a little bit of an expansion to everything whereas i know that some people really like you know this is the book of martial classes this is the book of arcane classes and it's like a real in-depth look at a very narrow scope so what are your thoughts and feelings on whether this method is a a good method having a little bit of expansion towards everything or would you have preferred to see a more focused individual class specific style book i feel like i have kind of a love-hate relationship with it i do like that it's something for everybody but at the same time it's hard to find things sometimes especially because of the lack of index (laughs) i'm going to preface this by saying that i have spent years dming with players who enjoy power gaming the hell out of the characters that they make. So this, for me, is far better than the in-depth specific guides, just because in the past, I've had players that will pull, like, cherry-pick individual rules from three different books, put them all together, and then drop it on the table and say, ha, not only can you not attack me, you take damage for even attempting to attack me, and I get three spectral allies automatically. And it's like, it's all valid, but there's no way for me as a DM to anticipate that without doing extensive research that I don't have the time to do because I'm trying to, you know, build an actual adventure for these people. Right, and that also presumes that you own all the books yourselves or can otherwise acquire them via the internet, which I would never condone, of course. Right. I mean, even if even if you own them, you still... Like, most of those books were, you know, 30 to 50 pages in and of themselves. Yeah. And that, you know, like I said, you have to dig and dig and dig and then figure out how they mesh with everyone else. So this one, at least, you know, there's no guarantee that I'm still going I'm going to be able to avoid all of the weird combinations and permutations that can be achieved but it's at least easier to say okay here's the thing on this page of Xanathar's and then the other thing is on this page of Xanathar's wow you're really clever now you're in a gelatinous cube deal with it um <laughs> but yeah that's that's my position although I see where I see where people who preferred the in-depth guides could be a little bit more put off Love-hate relationship was really not what I meant to say. <laughs> I actually really like, really prefer this format, but there are times when I, I personally would rather have just classes. Not, not separated classes, but like the first half of Xanathar's could have been its own book. Right. Don't, yeah. don't give wizards ideas. <laughs> but I still love it because there's DM and player stuff all together and I don't have to thumb through multiple books at once to find things yeah and i agree i i really like this style where it's a little bit of an expansion to everything although i do kind of see the point that a lot of people were making which was if you can imagine by the time we're on you know xanathar's guide to everything five or whatever we're exactly trying to keep track of which rule book that particular rule is in rather than just having a single you know this is all the additional dm rules this is all the additional class rules this is all the additional uh whatever um, having that sort of spread of information can be pretty pretty tough. I do like that they say instead of it being official rules, it's more more guidelines, ideas of how to make your game better as a DM and not just these are what you have to do. Right. Well, that leads me nicely on to my next question, which was where do you guys think this fits in? I mean, is this effectively at this point the sort of like unofficial fourth core rulebook? At least for character classes, I would say yes. For Dungeon Master's Tools, it's really not a rule book. 
but more tips. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. It's it can probably cons- be considered a core rulebook for players, um, but it's not necessarily a marching orders for DMs. It's more just sort of a here's ways that you can make your life easier or spice up your campaign or something like that. And we all need that from time to time. Yeah. 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 Tell me about it. And again, I think the other sort of thing that this has got going for it is that it doesn't have, like we said in the intro section, any monsters or any dungeons. So at least all the additional monsters that they've brought out have been effectively, you know, unless you take the the adventure modules themselves, like Tomb of Annihilation or Rise of Tiamat or whatever, um, all the monsters themselves are generally contained within either the Monster Manual or Volo's Guide to Monsters. So, also, is it Volo or Volo? I don't know, being a Brit, I would say Volo. I've been saying Volo. Yeah, over here across the pond, it's usually Volo. Okay, well, I'm probably wrong, but (laughs) I will never admit it. Um, So, Volo's Guide to... (laughs) <laughs> um, Volo's Guide to Monsters at least uh, you know there's only the two books that comprise of a single like tome of monsters that you can pick from and I think that is one advantage that Xanathar's Guide does have is that it doesn't have monsters in it so yeah I like that they're still keeping the monster lists separate I think that's a trend that should definitely continue and this week's community question it's all we've talked about today, so it should come as no surprise that we want to hear your views on Xanathar's Guide to Everything. What were your high and low points? Are there any classes or mechanics that you're just dying to try out? What's your preference? Small expansions to everything, or would you prefer more of a single focus book? No matter what your views, we'd love to hear from you. We'll be telling you how to get in touch when we look into the scrying pool. But that's not the only d news this week, so here's our quick rundown of the best of the rest. Greg Tito chats with Matt Cernet about lycanthropes in Law You Should Know, and interviews Frederick Tremblay from Become on the new Tales from Candlekeep Tomb of Annihilation board game on this week's Dragon Talk. Several new elf subraces have been released in this month's Unearthed Arcana. Avariel, the Winged Elves, Grugach, the Wild Greyhawk Elves, Sea Elves, Elves of the Sea, yeah, it's it's pretty much self-explanatory, and Shadar Kai, the Servants of the Raven Queen. Players of Neverwinter, the 4th edition MMO by Cryptic Studios, can now get extra bonus rewards when they purchase Zen from the 22nd of November through the 4th of January. Bonus rewards range from a tribal polar bear mount right up to a runic bag of holding. And Beamdog have announced Neverwinter Nights Enhanced Edition coming to Steam soon. Combining all of the expansions of the Diamond Edition with an improved display, advanced graphics options, a ton of input from the Neverwinter Nights community, and of course the Aurora toolset so you can build your own creations and the Dungeon Master client, Neverwinter Nights is set to make a comeback. And I am super excited about that last one. Me I, too. Either, yeah, I was going to say, did either of you play Neverwinter Nights? I played all of it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Except, Ostron, except for you? the new MMO. I've played all of it. <laughs> I have not. That is not a, uh, a a game series that I ever got involved with. Ah, okay. Well, then a very, very quick rundown of it. Neverwinter Nights is a third edition, I believe, maybe 3.5, graphical uh, MMO light in inverted commas. It's kind of, you know, you could party up with different people across the internet, but more importantly, there was a tool set so you could create your own adventures. And uh, they're now introducing the the Dungeon Master client. So you'll be able to play as the Dungeon Master whilst the other players are actually running around in your own created virtual world. It's like the ultimate user-generated content toolkit. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Minor curiosity. Yeah. Weren't these Shadarkai human derivatives in the past? See, I thought they were. On the, in the fourth edition, um, uh, what was it called? I want to say Manual of the Plains, but I know that's not it, and I know that someone's going to correct me. No, it in was the. the um, I believe it was the Underdark one, whatever they. No, called the, it was it was the Shadowfell. It was definitely the Shadowfell, but oh. I can't think what the name of the book was. And yeah, I thought that they were human variants. So, or <laughs> variants is the wrong term, but they were definitely human. Yeah, the fact that they are now elves is kind of interesting. But yeah, if anybody does know more about them, of course, let us know. Comment on this show's post, or send us an email, or a tweet, or all of that good stuff. We'll tell you how to do that coming up. And now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and hear some tips from our Players' Adventurers' Journals. What the hell did you just cast? Flaming Hand of Fiery Doom. 
a fourth level spell on a zero level peasant. Yeah. Okay, guys, so you'll have to forgive me. As a Brit, we don't really have Thanksgiving over here, so I'm not really too familiar with it. So, like, when somebody mentions Thanksgiving, what do you guys think of? Druids. Okay, um, I've got to be honest, I didn't didn't quite see it going that way, and it doesn't seem quite right, but, you know, (laughs) who am I to argue? Well, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I guess we'll talk about Aarakocran druids. Great. So, who are the Aarakocra? The Aarakocra are a race of avians from the Elemental Plane of Air, who were made available as a playable race in the Elemental Evil Player's Companion. Although gifted with the ability to fly, they suffer from a short lifespan, reaching maturity in only three years, and most of them die of old age by 30. On the Elemental Plane of Air, where nigh-immortal elementals and genies dwell in abundance, it's difficult to notice the difference. If you live 70 years or 700, most of your neighbors continue on unchanged. On the other hand, the tribes on the Prime Material Plane see the stark difference in years, where generations fly by in the space of a single human lifespan. While this allows their society to rapidly adapt to changing conditions, it puts history and tradition merely half a century in the past beyond the memory of even the oldest members. Those tribes that choose to interact with their neighbors can face another challenge, the difficulty of maintaining stable relations with other races when their envoys change frequently and have a much briefer life experience. A newly assigned envoy might have been born and grown into adulthood in the five years since an important treaty was signed. So how can they compensate for this? Well, there's been many who've searched for ways to add to their allotted years, and few who have actually succeeded, and many of those lose what years they have in their attempts to do so. Wishes are subject to a misinterpretation, lichdom is generally considered socially unacceptable, and artifacts almost invariably have unwanted side effects. Even obtaining one of those methods is highly risky, and the results aren't guaranteed. However, 18th level druids receive the Timeless Body ability, with which they age only a single year for each decade that passes. While it may take much of a druid's life to achieve, the wisdom and experience gathered during that time will be available for generations to come. The druid class is already a decent match for Aarakocra. Both mechanically and thematically, Aarakocra are limited to light armor if they want to use their ability to fly, so the druidic abhorrence to metal armor doesn't affect them. They get a plus two bonus to dexterity, which helps mitigate the armor restriction, and plus one to wisdom, which aids with spell casting. Circle of the Moon Druids will find Wild Shape can be used to operate in areas that Aarakocra might normally have difficulty in, such as underground, while Circle of the Land Druids will use their enhanced spellcasting to adapt. Their primary disadvantage is range. Their longest ranged weapon is the Sling at 120 feet, and longest range cantrip is Frostbite at 60 feet. Even in wide open skies, the Druidic Aarakocra will have to get closer to their enemies than their allies with bows or longer range spells would. Druids are also a fairly good thematic match for Aarakocra. Tribal leadership among the Aarakocra falls to the eldest of the tribe with a shaman to advise them. Lower level druids would serve as the shaman or assist them. However, most that have reached 18th level will likely have already moved beyond their own tribe to become a champion for their whole colony, giving those timeless druids a larger role in their society. Many will likely come to be historians, lore keepers, and sages for their colony, passing along the tales of the past they've borne witness to for generations to come. Some timeless druids of a more sociable bent might choose instead to serve as diplomats and envoys, bringing continuity and stability to relations between their colony and the longer-lived races. The only thematic caveat is that druids are connected to the land, while Aarakocra, like many denizens of elemental air, holds elemental earth in great distaste. However, considering that many human priesthoods help their worshippers with distasteful matters like death or the undead, so too do Aarakocran druids serve as intercessors for the rest of their people, managing the matters of both air and land when they impinge on Aarakocran society. Okay, so this is all well and good, but be honest guys, how was any of that actually related to Thanksgiving in any way? (laughs) Okay, well, um... Let's just have a look at the byline here, and that article was written by our head scribe, Baxter, so he may have to go for racial sensitivity training. 
again, and we'd like to take this opportunity to apologise to any and all Arakokra or Thanksgiving turkeys who may have been offended by this segment. If you did enjoy this segment though, there is a sample build available for a druidic Arakokran that will be available in our show notes. But for now, let's look into the scrying pool and see what you have to say. What news from the north? Dryness of Rohan! Message for you, sir! Normally, this section of the show, The Scrying Pool, is where the discussion would turn two-way. Each week, we would take your feedback and read it out on air, letting you join in on the conversation. Alas, as this is our first show ever, feedback is somewhat light on the ground this week. So, we have the pleasure instead of introducing you to Abilithard, our resident Illithid. Abilithard, thank you for joining us on such short notice. Excellent. I believe you have a letter from a listener who needs help? Okay, let's just uh, take a look here. Dear Abby... uh, Who's Abby? (laughs) Anyway, dear Abby... In the first game I ever DM'd, I built an encounter for some level 1 characters where a goblin crit and would have insta-killed a player. Because I roll behind the screen, I decided to fudge the dice roll and say it was just a regular hit. Now I have a similar problem, but this time the PCs are at 8th level and they are dealing with a very important NPC. If they fail their diplomacy checks, it will spell disaster for the entire world. The king would send his armies into a war he's not prepared for, and the kingdom will be totally destroyed, meaning that the evil warlock I've been saving will be free to come out, and he's been tasked by his patron to destroy the weave. With no army to stop him, everything in the world, including the PCs, will end up dying. So my question is, should I fudge my dice roll again? And when is it acceptable to fudge the dice roll? That's a very good question. So in this particular scenario, I wouldn't, just because, in my personal opinion as a DM, that is more... Long-term consequences are something that should be played out, regardless of of whether they're favorable or not. Because you say that you built the encounter and... They're in a situation where if they fail, everything's going to fall apart. But you're the DM, so conceivably you could come up with a way to make sure that the end of the world is not, in fact, unavoidable. So I would just say, yeah, if it's something where if you can do a subtle manipulation of the story in order to either mitigate the effects of a die roll or move the result of the die roll more in line with the story, then you should just go forward with it. The case where you've got a random mob character who happened to get lucky and, you know, would have lopped off the head of the party's wizard, that's a situation where I feel more comfortable with fudging it, just because that doesn't provide an opportunity for fun. That's more likely to just upset the player make things more inconvenient for you because now you have to figure out how not to kill the rest of the party since they're down a person and it just gets complicated if if having this particular scenario happen in your game is not what you want at all i would say why are you even requiring a dice roll right here now if it's something you're prepared to deal with then i would say don't fudge it at all if you're not prepared to deal with it in any way shape or form then just don't make it a dice roll. Make it a conversation between the characters and the NPC. Yeah, I mean, the the way that I view it is that you should only really be rolling the dice when there is consequence to failure or consequence to success, alternatively. You know, when when it can go either way, that's when you roll a dice. And and much like your thoughts there, Ryu, it's, if it is that crucial that they do not fail, then don't give them the chance to fail. Exactly. Otherwise, what's the point of even rolling the dice if you're just going to make it up anyway? Yeah, it's not required that you make a die roll for every situation where a die roll is possible. But I think yeah. the larger, like that's this specific example we've talked about, but in general, do you have a threshold for when you will or will not fudge a die roll? Well, I think that depends on whether or not you are rolling in front of your characters or behind a screen. See, I would never fudge a die roll for the very simple fact that if you fudge a die roll, then to me, whether you fudge it openly or behind the scenes or 
whatever. I mean, if you fudge it openly, you, you kind of, that's just silly. But um, <laughs> if you do it behind the scenes, um, then again, you're taking away the whole reason of rolling the dice. And if you roll the dice and then you suddenly think, ah, like I shouldn't have done this, then that's cool. Just negate the result entirely. But don't roll it and then choose to have it say the thing you wish it said. If, if that's the way that you're going with it, just don't roll it in the first place. And using this specific example, just to go back to it, the other thing is, of course, is don't build your campaign to a point where the whole thing hinges on a single die roll. Because if you if you want to keep on playing in that world, then why why have you built it that way? And like you were saying there, Ostron, as well, you know, the future, although you have plans, it, it, it isn't written yet as far as the characters are concerned. So even if the die roll does fail, that doesn't mean that all these things that you have mentally put in place have to happen. There could be any number of things. Maybe the king does send his army. Maybe the army does get destroyed. Maybe the evil warlock does then get released. But then who's to say that another high-level adventuring party doesn't appear to team up with your guys to then help take him out? You know, there's 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 options that you can use. So never is my is my threshold. But enough about what we think. What do you think, Abilithard? My word is this. It is your fault you ended up in that position. The best way to solve it would be for you to be psionically stunned and have your brain devoured. Though I doubt it would be of great sustenance. Well, thanks for joining us, Abilithard. A pleasure as always. And if any of you out there have any questions you would like to ask the Illithid, send them to us via email, social media, or our website. Full details coming up very soon. And our recap of this week's community question. It's all we've been talking about, so it should come as no surprise that we want to hear your views on Xanathar's Guide to Everything. What were your high and low points? Are there any classes or mechanics that you're just dying to try out? No matter what your views, we'd love to hear from you. And so this brings us to the end of the first entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back with our second entry next week on December 6th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Did we roll high and crit against the dragon, or was it a natural one and we stabbed ourselves in the foot? No matter your thoughts or feelings, we want to hear them. Here's how you can get in touch with us. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. We're even on some of the bad ones, too. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can use the contact form on our website, and all the details on all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of everything we do here, so please take a moment and tell us your thoughts. Also, be sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you like what we do and want to come and join our team, then get in touch with us through our website, email, or social media. All that remains is for us to thank the people who make this show possible. Our head scribe, Baxter, our artist and web wizard, Ben Sanders, and of course, our audio alchemist, Mikey. A special thanks to Vince Fept for the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com. And a special thanks to the designer of our banners and avatars, Low of Lowe's Lair. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And our tale our paths shall cross again. Fare thee well, brave adventurers. By emailing us at sendingstone at heroes right po- ah. either by emailing us at hit ah. either by emailing us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com or getting on to <sighs> First of all, we'll give you a tool for your adventurers packs for when you need to cr- j- yeah. <laughs> for your adventurers packs. Did somebody just switch on a vacuum? <laughs> that was me, sorry. <laughs> I was playing around with warlocks, so I shouldn't. Nobody likes warlocks. Yeah, well, um, in the. (laughs) Um, guys, I don't think that recorded that last bit for me.
Oh, never mind. I had pulled up a different Audacity window. <laughs> I think I need a nap, you guys. <laughs> I don't like this rule. What page is that on? That's just what I'm looking for. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to find it while you were talking about it. Yeah. Um, I want to say it's one of the early ones, but also the other thing Xanathar's guide doesn't have is an index. The tink uh, the tink crystals. Beep beep. Okay, what page are those on? I can't find them. Uh, literally just the last twenty pages of the book. Well, that would just be why I can't find them because that's not where I was looking. Um, yeah, see, if only Xanathar's guide to everything had an index. index. Yeah. <laughs> and Shadar Kai, the servants of the Raven Queen. Can you can you do that again? Yeah. But don't don't call her the Raven Queen because. Yeah. <laughs> and short rest in three. Two. Wait, before so, you guys start, should... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's been many who've searched for ways to add to their allotted... There's been many who've searched for... <sighs> there have. There have, yep. Wow, you're really clever. Now you're in a gelatinous cube. Deal with it.